0: There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. There is nothing that you can ever do to make God stop loving you. That's our big idea today, and it's the first thing that I wanted to say to you today. Why? Because, one, I want you to be in a gospel frame of mind this morning. Secondly, because we all doubt God's love for us, don't we? Especially when we sin and when we're stuck in the muck and the mire of our sin. But third, I want to say that to you today because we will look at God's word today in Ezra chapter 9 will function like a mirror. You are going to see your reflection in the mirror of Ezra chapter 9 today. And when you see how hideous your heart is, when you see just how closely you are related to the people in Ezra 9, when you come to grips with the fact that you don't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even though you think you do, when you come to grips with these realities, then you need this gospel promise hung around your neck. There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. I could spend the next 35 minutes repeating that because for some of you it would be minute 34 where you would finally start to believe it. There is nothing that you can ever do to make God stop loving loving you. And this is exactly what Ezra will point out in today's passage. Of course, he will highlight the sin of the nation. It's pretty obvious as you read Ezra chapter 9. But Ezra will drop little gospel bombs in his prayer of repentance and confession, knowing that they will soon detonate. So look at Ezra chapter 9. In verses 1 through 2, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the words of the God who will always keep loving you no matter what you do. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." We saw last week that Ezra and company, about 6,000 people, traveled some 900 plus miles on a four month long road trip from Persia all the way back to Jerusalem, the city of God. They had left captivity, the second wave of those people who left Babylonian captivity. After about four and a half months, the story picks up here in Ezra chapter 9. So here's the timeline in Ezra 7, 9. We're told that Ezra began planning his trip from Persia on the first day of the first month. In Ezra 8.31, we read that Ezra departed Persia with these 6,000 people on the 12th day of the first month and that he arrived on the first day of the fifth month. So it was about a four-month-long road trip. We'll see next week in Ezra 10.9 that Ezra gathered all of Israel to Jerusalem after he heard that they were beginning to intermarry with the nations, he gathered them on the twelfth day of the ninth month. So Ezra found out about these illegal marriages on the ninth day of the ninth month. So roughly four and a half months after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, he hears that some Israelites have intermarried with the surrounding nations. They have married non-Jews, Gentiles. Now, you have to realize there is a four-month gap between the end of Ezra chapter 8 and the beginning of Ezra chapter 9. So the question is, what was Ezra doing for four months, and how come it took him four months to find out that the nation began turning away from the Lord and were marrying foreign women? Well, Ezra was doing what King Artaxerxes had commanded him to do in Ezra 8.36. Ezra was traveling and seeing uh, and reporting to all of the Persian governors and congressmen all that the king had commanded him to do. So at this point, Ezra has spent four and a half months going throughout the region, showing people the letter that the Persian king, Artaxerxes, had sent, giving his approval of and support of the worship of Yahweh to continue in Jerusalem. Ezra has been busy appointing magistrates and judges, as he said he would in Ezra 7.25. So he's been, doing, been busy doing what he was told to do by King Artaxerxes. So Ezra returns to Jerusalem after visiting all of these powerful politicians for four months. And he is greeted with this news. Some Israelites have begun marrying foreign women. Some Israelite men had taken foreign women to be their sons' wives and to be their own wives. And then they dropped the bomb on Ezra in verse 2. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So it wasn't just your average run-of-the-mill Israelite who had sinned by intermarrying with a Hittite or a Canaanite or an Egyptian woman. Even some in the priestly line had done this, as we'll see next week in Ezra chapter 10. Now, before we discuss Ezra's response to some of these Israelites marrying non-Israelite women, understand that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, in his word, in the law, had declared that marrying foreign women was off limits. In Exodus 34 and in Deuteronomy 7, Yahweh prohibited Israelite men from marrying foreign women. Now, why? Why would the Lord prohibit Israelites from marrying non-Jews. In each of these passages, the main reason is that the Lord knew that these foreigners would turn the hearts of these Israelites away from worshiping Yahweh. The Lord knew that in time there would be compromise and Israelites would begin to worship other gods. As Exodus 34 warns, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. So there's a prohibition against marrying non-Israelite women because they will turn your heart away from the Lord. On the other hand, though, Yahweh did allow some Israelites, to marry foreigners. The Lord did not specifically forbid all marriages between Jews and foreigners. The Lord made a few exceptions. We have several examples of intermarriage in the Old Testament, but these are the exception. Please understand that these are the exception and not the rule. Moses and Zipporah, Salmon and Rahab, Boaz and Ruth, we love that story, don't we? Did you ever think that he married a Moabite? And Moabites are forbidden from the presence of the Lord in the law. Joseph and Asenath and Solomon and his first wife, Pharaoh's daughter, an Egyptian woman. In all of these cases, these foreign women, I believe, were Israelites in heart. They loved Yahweh, they worshipped him exclusively, and it was Solomon whose first wife, Pharaoh's daughter, was an Israelite in heart, but it was Solomon too who later proved that when you marry foreign women and you marry lots of them, they in fact do turn your heart away from the Lord, and that's exactly what happened to Solomon. You can read about it in 1 Kings 11. So there was an allowance to marry foreign women, and it was whether they worshipped Yahweh exclusively. If they had become an Israelite, if they had experienced a circumcision of the heart, if they had, as we would say, accepted Yahweh into their hearts as their Lord and Savior, then it seems that the Lord made an allowance. Again, this is the exception and not the rule. The Lord desired foreigners to come worship Him But if they came into Israel, the men and the boys had to be circumcised, and they all had to have a circumcised heart, according to Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. But in Ezra 9 here, it appears that these foreign women did not worship Yahweh exclusively, because as we'll see next week in chapter 10, they get sent away. They have to leave with their kids. It also appears that these women did turn the hearts of these men away from the Lord because Ezra will tell these men next week in Ezra chapter 10 that they have broken faith with Yahweh. And they're beginning to worship other gods. And this sin was very serious because some of the priests, the spiritual leaders of the nation, had broken faith with Yahweh. And that's why Ezra freaks out. And if you don't believe me that Ezra freaked out when he heard that some people were intermarrying with the nations, watch what he does. Look at verse 3 with me. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. The Hebrew here is Ezra freaked out. Ezra freaked out because he had memorized Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 through 4 which says you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly So Ezra hears that some people have begun intermarrying with the nations. He freaks out and rips his clothes kind of like Hulk Hogan used to do. And then he pulls hair from his head and from his beard. And all the hipsters said, ouch. And the boys in Duck Dynasty said, ouch. You know, they don't like this passage about pulling hair from the beard. Now you may think Ezra is overreacting here. Come on, Ezra. You're going to rip your clothes, pull your own hair out of your head, pull hair out of your beard. We may be tempted to think that he's overreacting here. Come on, Ezra, simmer down now. Just because you were out of regular coffee this morning and there was only decaf, that's no reason to go and act all crazy. We might be tempted to think that way. We might be tempted to think that Ezra is overreacting here. That's probably because we have a low view of sin. We don't like to think that sin is that bad or we think sin is no big deal. We don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, as rebels. We have such a low view of sin that when I told you earlier that you don't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it made some of you mad. When I told you earlier that you don't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, some of you thought, oh, yes, I do. See, you have a low view of sin. You have a low view of sin because you actually think that you do love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't. Oh, you love him. You do. I love him. We love him. But we don't love him with all of our being because we choose sin every day. Only Jesus Christ loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love him with all of our being because we all choose sin, the sin that we love every day. But guess what? There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. That's why the word gospel means good news. It's good news because I sin all the time and you sin all the time and yet there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. And that's exactly what is about to motivate Ezra to pray in just a moment. But before we look at his prayer, a few observations as we look at this passage. And the first is this, the people of God will disappoint you. The people of God, the church, we will disappoint you. Never be surprised at just how sinful people can be. And if you're new to this church, you have to know this about us. We are sinners. If you don't understand that about us, you will be unnecessarily disappointed. We're a collection of sinners here. We are not perfect and we don't claim to be. Only Jesus Christ is perfect. The people of God will disappoint you. Second observation is most of us don't understand a genuine, holy reaction to sin. Most of us are shocked at Ezra's reaction and not shocked at Israel's sin. Most of us will be more offended next week because we'll see in chapter 10 that they have to send these foreign wives and their kids away because of their sin. And that will bother us more than their actual sin. So you're going to have to wrestle with that this week. Why do they have to send their wives and their kids away? And that's going to make some of you mad. And their sin doesn't cause that reaction in you or me. See, most of us are shocked at Ezra's reaction to sin. This says more about us than it does Ezra. We are the ones who are a little too cozy with sin. Myself being the chief in this regard. How comfortable I am with my own sin. But Ezra isn't the only person freaking out here. There were others besides Ezra who were appalled at all the intermarriages that had taken place. Ezra was not alone. Look at verse 4. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to Yahweh my God. Verse 4 tells us what God desires of his people, trembling at his word. The Hebrew of Ezra 9.4 reads literally, all the tremblers gathered around me all the tremblers gathered around me the tremblers I I like that God desires his people to be tremblers you know how our tagline around here at Grace is making disciple, making disciples what if we started saying this making trembling, making tremblers that might change things around here is that how you describe yourself to people? I'm a trembler of Jesus. I tremble at his word. That might change how you read the Bible. In fact, the same Hebrew word used by Ezra here for trembling is used by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 66 2. the Lord says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is looking for tremblers people who tremble at his word and it was a group of tremble tremblers who gathered around and appalled Ezra. But as Ezra and the tremblers sat appalled at the nation's sin, something was in the air that day. Something was in the air that actually prompted Ezra to pray. Something was in the air. Something was blowing in the wind that reminded Ezra, there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. And what was in the air? What did Ezra smell that reminded him of God's steadfast love. What did Ezra smell that made him think? Cheer up, Ezra, you're worse than you think you are, but Yahweh still loves you. What was it? It was the smell of the evening sacrifice. The smell of burning animals reminded Ezra that Yahweh was gracious. The smell of the evening sacrifice, which was a young lamb, reminded Ezra of the evening sacrifice and how Yahweh smelled the evening sacrifice and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now in Exodus 29, the evening sacrifice is described as a pleasing aroma to the Lord and would serve to remind Israel that Yahweh dwells with sinners. The evening sacrifice would remind Israel that the holy God of the universe actually wants to be around sinful people. In Exodus 29, 43 through 45, the Lord says this about the place where the evening sacrifice was slaughtered. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. I'm afraid we read verses like that too fast. We should be shocked. God is telling us, I dwell with sinners. We know now it's because of Jesus Christ, but we should be shocked here. The holy God of the universe actually wants to come down and be around us? And it was the smell of the evening sacrifice that reminded Ezra, this is how our God works. This is how Yahweh rolls. When Ezra smelled the evening sacrifice, it reminded him that Yahweh too smelled the evening sacrifice and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And to stress the fact that Yahweh took great pleasure in the evening sacrifice... That he took great pleasure in sacrificial atonement. Moses will tell us three times in Numbers 28, when he's describing the evening sacrifice, three times Moses will repeat that it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it was this pleasing aroma to Ezra. It was a pleasing aroma to him too, because as he smelled the evening sacrifice, he was reminded that God is smelling this too right now, and it's bringing him pleasure. It's a pleasing aroma to God even right now. Ezra was reminded that Yahweh dwells with sinners. Ezra is flabbergasted at this point. As he smells the evening sacrifice, he's reminded the holy God of the universe actually has made a way for broken, rebellious sinners like us to come close to him, to be in his presence. Ezra is flabbergasted at this. He knows his sin. He knows the sin of the nation. And he says, I can't believe it. God actually wants to be around us. Does he know how we act? Yes, he does. And that's why he made a way through sacrificial atonement for sinners like you and me to be able to come close to him. And he made the way for us through Jesus Christ." which is what the evening sacrifice was pointing towards. There's a cost to coming close to the holy God of the universe and the cost, sacrificial atonement. It's Jesus dying for us. Are you flabbergasted today that the holy God of the universe wants to be around sinners like us? It's because Jesus' sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to him. So Ezra is overwhelmed with this truth. He falls on his knees and he says he spread out his hands to the Lord. The Hebrew word is not the typical Hebrew word that they would use for hand. Here he uses the Hebrew word kaf, which is the the palm of the hand. Here Ezra is extending up an empty hand, a cupped hand, if you will. As if to say, I have nothing to bring to you, Lord. I come empty-handed. I don't come with my own righteousness. I don't come with my own goodness. I don't come with my faithful track record of perfect quiet times since January 1st. I don't come with any of that, Lord. I come only with my hands full of sin. And it is his sin and the sin of the nation that Ezra will lay before the Lord. Look at verse 6 and listen to his prayer. But notice, as we're reading, look for the hints where he... Drops little gospel bombs that are going to detonate. Look at verse six. Spread out my hand saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by Yahweh our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us, and you expect it to read, sword, he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurities of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil needs and for our great guilt, seeing that you, O God, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra's prayer is honest and real about their sin. But I don't know if you saw them. Ezra buried a few landmines of grace here in his prayer. There are a few gospel landmines that if you will see them and step on them, they will detonate and what they will say is this. There is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you obviously Ezra knows his sin and the sin of the nation. Ezra acknowledges that this sin problem is not just a problem that surfaced that day in 457 BC. Ezra, in fact, tells Yahweh what Yahweh has already known since Genesis 3. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Ezra's prayer is oozing with the muck and the mire of sin. You can almost smell the stench of sin as you read it. It's just everywhere. But if your nose is trained, if your nose is trained, you can smell grace in this prayer too. And not everybody has a nose that's trained to smell grace, to smell the gospel. Some of us, our nose is only trained to smell law. But if you have a nose that is trained to smell grace, to smell the gospel, you can smell it in his prayer too. You can smell grace in Ezra's prayer because he smelled grace as he smelled the evening sacrifice. And Ezra knew that the Lord smelled the evening sacrifice and it brought him pleasure. And we get, in verse 8, we get a whiff of that grace. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by Yahweh our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Ezra says that now, for a brief moment, the Lord has shown them grace. Literally, in Hebrew, it's like a little moment. Like a little moment, we've been shown favor. It's the Hebrew word grace. Like a little moment, we've been shown grace. Ezra wants us to see the contrast. Israel's entire history of sin. Years and years and years and years and years of sin and rebellion. Years and years and years of people not loving the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, contrast that with a brief moment of grace. Like a little moment of grace from the Lord. Years and years and years and years and years and years and years years of the Lord loving his people in little moments of grace every single day. Years and years and years and years and years and years and years years of the Lord beating the same drum over and over and over and over again. There is nothing you can do to ever make God stop loving you. And in this little moment, Ezra says that Yahweh has done what Yahweh has always done. He has kept covenant Look at verse 9, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love, steadfast love. That's a great word, steadfast. I don't think I hear it outside of the Bible or outside of church. I never hear people using the word steadfast. I love that we have the market on that word, the church does, because I don't hear it out there in the world anywhere. I don't hear people using steadfast that much. It's a great word, and when you combine it with the word love, you get the definition of the Hebrew word here in verse 9, hesed. Here's that word hesed again. You can't escape it when you read the Old Testament. Hesed is God's one-way love, his steadfast love. Hesed is God's commitment to his sinful people. Hesed is God's devotion to his sinful people. Hesed is God's commitment and his devotion to his people who don't love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hesed is God's commitment, his devotion to his people Whose history is littered with their constant, continual, non-stop sin. Hesed could be defined this way: there is nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. That's what Hesed means. And Ezra highlights Yahweh's Hesed here in verses 8 through 9. He says, you have left a remnant of people. You didn't wipe us all out. You could have. You told Moses, I'll wipe out all of Israel and I'll make a nation just of you, Moses. So we know you can wipe us out and build another nation out of one man, out of Ezra. No, there's a remnant of people because of Yahweh's Hesed, his steadfast love. There is security, Ezra says. Literally literally the Hebrew is tent peg. Yahweh has nailed down his people. And their sin cannot blow them away from his presence. We have a secure hold in your holy place, he says. Like a tent peg, you have nailed us down, God. And our sin cannot blow us away or uproot us from your presence. That's hesed. There has been a reviving in our hearts, he says in verse 8. We have not been forsaken, verse 9. We have been granted favor, grace, grace before pagan kings. We have been protected by the Lord like a wall protects a city. This inventory of Hesed in verses 8 through 9 is proof to Ezra and company that there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you and Ezra's response to all of this grace all of this steadfast love is found in verse 10 where he says this what shall we say after this shall we break your commandments again Ezra's response in verse 10 to God's grace is just the Old Testament version of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. You know the verse, you're familiar with it, but did you know that Paul is plagiarizing Ezra? What does Paul say in Romans 6, 1 and 2? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he says in Romans 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Ezra is saying here, will we sin away grace? No. Will we sin away God's steadfast love? Are we capable of sinning away God's steadfast love? No. No. Because Yahweh has nailed us down like a tent peg in his presence. And sin cannot blow us away or uproot us from God's steadfast love. What Ezra is saying here is this. There is nothing that you can do to make God stop loving you. And then he adds a coda Or a tag to the song that he's been singing. There is nothing you can do. Ever do to make God stop loving you. Now let that change what you do. And that's exactly what we'll see next week in Ezra 10. Ezra will call on the nation to repent. Ezra will call on those who married foreign women. To pack their bags and hit the road with their kids. Ezra will call for change as a response to God's steadfast love. Notice it's going to be the gospel that motivates them to repentance and not law, not demand. It's God's love. But Ezra knows that grace not only forgives the bad things you do, grace transforms you out of the bad thing you are. Grace not only forgives the bad things that you do, grace transforms you out of the bad thing you are and that's what we'll see next week in Ezra 10. But here in Ezra 9, Ezra is coming to grips with his sin and the sin of the nation. And you and I have to do that too this morning. You need to see and smell and understand and come to grips with the ugliness of your sin. You need to see and smell and understand and come to grips with the ugliness of your sin. And that will make the steadfast love of Jesus the most exhilarating thing in the world. Until you smell the stench of your sin, grace will not be sweet. Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs said, Ah, Christians! Your hearts are never in so good a frame, so safe a frame, so sweet a frame, so happy a frame, so gospel a frame, as when they are in a trembling frame. So when a child of God fixes one eye upon the holiness and justice of God, he trembles and when at the same time he fixes his other eye upon the patience, the goodness, the graciousness, and the readiness of God to forgive as a father, then he loves and joys. You have to come to grips with the contrast between God's holiness. And your sinfulness before the beauty of the gospel ever makes sense. You have to come to grips with the contrast between God's holiness and your sinfulness before Jesus ever makes sense. And when you come to grips with the contrast between God's holiness and your sinfulness then you will see why Jesus was the evening sacrifice offered up for our sins. When you come to grips with the contrast between God's holiness and your sinfulness, then you will begin to understand why Jesus dying on the cross was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the reason why there is nothing you can ever do. To make God stop loving you. But sometimes we think that God doesn't love us. Don't we? Do you ever feel like God doesn't love you? Do you ever think that your failures actually change God's feelings for you? I do. I do all the time. And I know it's wrong. But I am so tempted to believe that Jesus is that fickle. I am so tempted to believe that Jesus is that fickle. That when I sin, his feelings for me begin to change. And that's why I need the gospel every day. That's why I need Jesus to save me from my little kingdom of self. Sadly, many Christians are just like me. We make the focus of the Christian life all about us and not about Jesus. All about what we do for him or all about what we don't do for him. Instead of about Him. And when we do this, we naturally see our many failures or we see our many victories and obediences. And then we slip into believing that God's love is either slowly fading because of our sin or His love is increasing because of our obedience. One book that has really helped me to understand God's love is a book that was first published in 1692 by Puritan Walter Marshall, the best book on sanctification out there. He says, You cannot love God if you're under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. You cannot love God if you secretly think he condemns and hates you. This kind of slavish fear will compel you to some hypocritical obedience. Such as what Pharaoh did when he let the Israelites go against his will. However, you will never truly love God if you are compelled only by fear. Your love for God must be won and drawn out by your understanding of God's love and goodness towards you. Just as John testifies in 1 John four eighteen and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear consists of torment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. You will never love God. You will never grow in holiness unless you understand just how much Jesus loves you. Jesus is the reason why there is nothing, nothing that you can ever do to make God stop loving you. Do you smell the evening sacrifice today? Do you smell the sacrifice of Jesus? His sacrifice, his sacrificial death on the cross for sinners like you and me brings God pleasure. His sacrifice is a pleasing aroma God, When Jesus died on the cross, God the Father went, oh, that's so good, pleasing aroma. If you can smell the sacrifice of Jesus today, a sacrifice that allows for a holy God to dwell with sinners like you and me, then why don't you do what Ezra did? Why not offer up the empty hand The cupped hand, the empty hand of faith and say to God, I bring nothing to you today. I don't bring my obedience to please you. I don't bring my perfect record of Bible reading to you today to try to please you, God. I don't bring my good works to please you. I don't bring anything but an empty hand. I bring an empty hand to you, an empty hand that can only hold sin in it. I bring sinful hands before you, and by faith I trust that Jesus pleased you for me. I trust that Jesus loved you with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength for me so that I can be with you. That is to have a gospel frame of mind this morning. Jesus is looking for people who tremble at his word and come to him with the empty hands of faith. But our big idea, there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you, can never be true of you unless you own up to your sin and unless you own up to your rebellion, unless you admit the fact that You, in fact, live as God, and you worship yourself, and yourself is the God that you worship. Unless you admit that you've broken God's law, you've offended a holy God because you're born a sinner. And unless you admit that, then our big idea, that will never be true of you. But if you can admit that today... Run to Jesus and by faith say, I'm sorry, forgive me. I believe that Jesus did everything to make me right with you. Then that right there will become your song forever. Will you do that today? Will you escape eternal punishment in hell forever for your rebellion? And let Jesus take your place on the cross. Let's close with a word from one of my gospel heroes. A pastor by the name of Jack Miller said this. Cheer up. You're far more sinful than you ever could imagine. But you're far more loved than you ever could dream. Cheer up. You're far more sinful than you ever could imagine. But cheer up. You're far more loved than you ever could dream. Dream. You and I have no idea just how bad we are, how corrupt we are, how sinful we are, how rebellious we are. If we put all of our collective minds together, we could not come up enough of what it means to be sinners. But we should cheer up because we're more loved by God than we could ever dream up this morning, than we could ever hope. Than we could ever imagine. Cheer up. You're far more sinful. Than you ever could imagine. But cheer up. You're far more loved. Than you ever could dream. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word today. Ezra 9. Is a mirror. And we see our reflection in it. This mirror doesn't have smudge marks on it. No graffiti. No foggy mirror because of a hot shower. God, this mirror is clean, shiny, sparkly, and we see ourselves in it. But more importantly, we see your son Jesus here. The evening sacrifice. The one who lived the life that we could never live. The one that died the death we deserve and you raised him from the dead. And that's who we see here this morning in Ezra 9. We see your favor your grace. We see your hesed, your steadfast love in the person of Jesus. And for that, we say thank you. We come with empty, cupped hands to you. In Jesus' name, amen.